Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. In our conversation series, we delve a little deeper to hear directly from artists, and for this episode, I spoke with Louise Weaver. For over three decades, Louise has worked tirelessly across multiple artistic mediums, becoming particularly well-known in the 90s for her incredible crochet animal forms. Whether it's painting, sculpture, sound or installation, Louise's work draws on a wide selection of associations, referencing everything from high fashion to mythology to the anxieties of environmental degradation. This conversation builds upon an earlier interview Louise and I did, which you can find on Art Guide Online. So in this podcast, we talk about her survey show between appearances at Buxton Contemporary, the stories behind her artworks and their dreamlike quality, and what Louise means when she says creating art is how she relates to the world. Last time we spoke, you were about to start installing your survey show at Buxton Gallery titled Between Appearances. And now the show is open and it's really, it's very phenomenal. <laughs> and, and I feel like you get such a good idea of the threads of your practice, whether they're conceptual or material. Mm. And what I was first surprised about was how things in the early works really still resonate in the later works, particularly even the work that you produced during high school. (laughs) And I'm curious, what was it like to be reconnected with pieces from 30 years ago? Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you, Tiani. Um, I think they're, they're around me and I remember making them and I have them in my consciousness pretty much all the time, even if I don't see them for a long time. And so I think it's been exciting and delightful to see things in context with one another and um, to to see the kind of relationships between things as, you, as you've described, the conceptual material and um, just the physical proximity of things sparks so many new ideas for me as well. So... I think most people think that if it's a survey show that there's a sense of it being all historical and in the past, but so many of the works I've made continue to be things that I've revisited in terms of their ideas and the materials and they're also things that have led me to make many of the works that are the current works in the show, but also thinking as ideas for the future as well. So it's a very energetic and energising kind of experience for me as an artist to both see the past works and also imagine futures for them as well for, for ideas sparking for the future. And with the show having works from high school, I mean, obviously your parents would have kept those for you and even then they must have known that you must have had great artistic talent because not every parent keeps their (laughs) children's high school art. I came from a family that was very um, supportive in in what we all... I have three younger siblings, three sisters. We were all encouraged to do whatever we wanted to do in terms of our careers. So Mm. I think... It wasn't ever something that was spoken or kind of evident in every day. It was simply just that these were things that I enjoyed to do and therefore that gathered momentum. And if my mum came home and saw me spread out all over the kitchen floor with things everywhere and <laughs> total <laughs> chaos, then that was accepted and, and fine. And and, and um, pretty much I've been working as I would have been in a studio probably since I was a young teen, even before then probably, uh, with that same kind of commitment and intensity of making and interest in exploring things through making. I think that's what's led me to be able to feel confident in approaching and adopting so many different ways of working and different attitudes to making. 
I think that's what's been the most important thing through that knowledge. And I think it was just um, inevitable that I would just go and have a formal education at an art school. But I didn't necessarily think I even would do that. (laughs) 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 Not because I saw that as um, something that would... I I saw it as something that would give me more possibilities for the future in terms of just um, being around like-minded people. But um, I think when I was 16, I was um, selected as one of 10 students across Victoria from high schools to go to the VCA and actually participate in workshops, a, a program for students. There were, I think, probably about 10 of us. And we were involved with the classes of the BA students and honours students. So, And I met, you know, important people in my life that have continued to be important but also who I still have contact with. So I think I it was just an unfolding of events as they were meant to be. That idea of the intensity of making, mm-hmm. you didn't have in the grand scheme of things a particularly long lead up to this exhibition. No, not and it, at all. <laughs> it sounded like you had to work quite intensely but mm-hmm. I feel like that's something that's probably marked your practice anyway. Yeah. How how often are you in the studio? What does like a, a day as an oh, artist look like for you? Well, in some ways, I don't think of my art, um, my life, and art as as separate things. I think it's one and the same thing. I certainly see it as a vocation, as a. I don't see it as a career as much as something that is an extension of my life and would go on regardless of whether I had opportunities to exhibit or not. It was it's something that I inherently need to do as part of my experience of living and involved being involved in the world and I enjoy and appreciate looking at other people's artwork and other art from other cultures and historical works of art as much as I do making my own work and I see it as an abiding passion rather than simply something that I you know do as a career so my day is immersed in making for long periods of time but equally I think it's very important to have periods of reflection and consideration of what you've made of what you've made what you're uh, thinking through ideas researching things but not in terms of an academic sense I mean through through making so I see my practice as very much thinking through making and discoveries that I've made often occur through chance and spontaneous happenstance they're things that I become attuned to as vital and positive attributes in my practice things that I then explore and extend sometimes to cul-de-sacs and other times you know they spark whole new ways of working for me which is what I'm seeking out on a daily basis that level of excitement of the new and it's very life-affirming and very exciting when you get into that mindset and way of working. It sounds like you'd just be having like a transcendental day every day. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's transcendental, but it's certainly a lot of fun. (laughs) I think it has to be fun. It has to be enjoyable and it has to be something that you draw great strength from through, you know, positive, optimistic experience. That's nice to hear because for a lot of artists, there's a lot of suffering and doubt and... But there need not be, I think. I think that's... I think the language that you use around your practice is very important and talking about yourself and your practice in very positive ways is one way of reminding yourself that it is actually an enjoyable experience. (laughs) 
The exhibition features a lot of your crochet works and crochet animal forms and a very particularly well-known one is Taking a Chance on Love, which is this incredible crocheted red landscape and it has this almost surreal undertone and it has a polar mm. bear poised in the centre. Not a Not polar, polar bear. bear. No, no, what is it? That was just in, someone imagined that it was a polar bear, right. I think because of the scale. I think it's probably um, a brown, a juvenile brown bear. So they're enormous animals. They're far bigger than that. Okay, correcting the record <laughs> on that one. Um, what do you think it is about that piece that resonates with so many people? It's hard for me to say, really. I, I, I know the feedback that I have from people is that they get immersed in it and I think that it allows them for that sense of the magic and what I call magic, but is really just delight and permission to be involved in the fantastic and the otherworldly that perhaps in some ways reminds people of their experiences growing up, maybe childhood fantasies, but I think it's something that we still crave and need as adults too, that sense of delight and wonder in the world. And I think it captures that for people. I think they experience wonder and, and delight when they look upon it and imagine themselves immersed in that as, a, as, a, as an experience of a, perhaps a different evolutionary course or the outcome of a different evolutionary course. Um, it's like an island of escape where you could, you know, like uh, Gulliver, Louis Stevenson's imagination of travelling to another life to an island that's lost and the kind of the sense of the foreign or the kind of fantastic and magical all encompassed in one thing, in one place. And the fantastical and the magical and the mythological, I don't think it's something you see a lot in contemporary art. Probably not. It's a work from 2003 and I made it at the... I was invited to participate in the Cecily and Colin Rigg Design Award, as it was then called, and it was featuring textiles. It's a craft and design award. And so it was with that in mind that that work was evolved and developed. And I think all those aspects of magic and mythology and transformation and the otherworldly are things that are probably important for me in my experience of life and that sense of wanting to capture and delight and wonder and acknowledging delight and wonder in the world. And that comes from growing up in a quite an isolated property in the Western District, but in other places around Australia as well. And I think it is just what I have experienced by sitting, while sitting in nature, sitting on a hilltop and or in amongst long grass and experiencing and observing nature firsthand for long periods of time without moving and just waiting for things to kind of be seen or emerge. And uh, it's trying to capture that feeling, I think, as much as something that could be kind of a storybook kind of sense of fantasy and imagining. For me, it is actually real lived experience. Mm. There's a lot of writers and artists who I think talk about capturing a similar feeling. And for a lot mm. of them, it seems to be almost as some kind of antidote to a very fast capitalist digital world. Mm. Is, that, is that something you think about? That's become something that's an overlay to many of the things that I've done. Not it, When I first started making works in that way, it was as a, you know, someone who's just out of art school or still while I was at art school, so in my early 20s. 
and developing it by going to library books and going to the library and getting books out on how to do things like crochet and teaching myself. And at that stage when I was exhibiting, very few people even knew what crochet was because it was out of fashion, wasn't really part of a craft movement that emerged later in that that decade and beyond. And it wasn't evident in fashion or in ways that people had first-hand experience of viewing it. And I think too, it was very much in the, so in the 1990s, very conscious of economic downturn, of some of the same conditions that we have now in this this period now we're living in. And I think it was using things that I had at hand. It was being modest about my kind of outlay financially. It was finding things that were found objects or things that I found out in <laughs> on the street, <laughs> like tree branches or stones mm. and, and using them. So it was what I had at hand. And so as a consequence, I became more conscious, you know, of the political and philosophical associations of using materials that weren't luxurious. For me, it was always the time involved in making the things, the thing that I had, which was a luxury, was a luxury of time. And so giving that over to the work and making it something very constructive and also as a way of defining time and time as a commodity became something I was interested in. Your installations in particular, and I guess even just many of the the works, they remind me a lot of the logic of dreams, that sort of Mm. in-between state where things are very familiar but just not quite familiar enough. Is that a state that you're trying to cultivate? I think that's just me. I think I I really love the quote that the surrealist artist Remedius Faro has said, which is, the dream state and the the lived state are the same thing. (laughs) For me, that's the case. You know, I suppose it's partially because I'm on my own a lot of the time making work and I allow myself to be very intuitive with making and thinking that... I allow those sort of dimensions and aspects to filter into my thinking and my making consciously, but also I think I'm just, as I've got older, seek it out as something that is that magical aspect that I'm seeking in the work or something that's slightly intangible. It feels like the positive aspects of free fall that you have with a dream where you allow things, you, you're noticing things that are happening in your dream state when you, you think you're conscious or a little bit conscious and you're kind of allowing it to sort of unfold naturally. I suppose that's the way I attribute the same qualities to my making, that I'm allowing myself to be conscious of things that might be just occurring naturally or um, spontaneously and through chance and and I'm highlighting those, recognising those and, and working with them as positive attributes. Is it hard to get to that place? I think, um, well... I don't kind of think about it probably anymore. I think it's because I've been making work for so long, my whole life I see it as. as it's um, when you said about the short lead-up time for the show, it was certainly very short for a show like this, six months from the time that I was invited to participate. I see it as six months but also a lifetime of experience. So it's probably things that I've been thinking about making are evident in the exhibition for a long time but I've just been able to realise them within this six-month period. And with the new works that you created in the six-month period, a lot of them are largely painting-based, mm. and I feel like you became very well-known for your crochet works, but obviously you've, mm. you've been painting since 
the 80s, really. Yeah. Why did you decide um, in 2019, I guess, to, to use that opportunity to, to make new painting works? I've been concentrating predominantly in the studio with making paintings probably for about six years. I've spent a long time experimenting with some of the materials that I'm using, paint as matter and material as much as something that can can be applied to a surface and seeing what the potential is for that. And I've been very interested in experimenting with different properties and attributes with paint and how they behave. So using paint off the surface of the canvas entirely, building up layers in reverse so that the first thing that I apply to a layer is often the most detailed element that you would apply last to a painting in a formal sense, in a usual sense. And I've reversed that entirely by building up layers on other malleable and static plastics and glass surfaces so that the detail and the final elements that are most resolved usually are the things that I see last and it's a surprise to me. I'm conscious of what I'm doing but I'm also open to chance and spontaneity through that making process as well. And I'm interested in ideas to do with mirroring (laughs) things that are kind of turned around and investigated from other vantage points and thinking of alchemical, so in terms of alchemy, changing and transforming materials, a lot of iridescent pigments and mineral specimens that have been ground down. So thinking about painting from an alchemical perspective, (laughs) (laughs) something that I suppose is um, kind of probably perfect for my way of thinking, but people don't usually consider as part of a painting practice. I'm also interested in just the fantasy element of me using being right-hand dominant, usually applying paint and making gestures with my right hand, but on revealing the painting in its final state, it it becomes apparent that it's a left-handed gesture. So I'm interested in me. It might be made by my hand and I might have executed the painting with my my hand, but it might not be me. You know, that sense that um, some other um, sense is, is involved or kind of involved and developed in making the work. It could be someone else's voice or (laughs) other authorship has come into the process of making. And just, you know, kind of involved. I'm interested in a lot of novels and writing and um, a lot of the things that happened in the late 1800s, you know, Conan Doyle's fascination with spiritualism and lots of other writers and... I suppose it's kind of filtered through into my interest in painting, but also going to um, archaeological and spiritual sites around the world, you know, thinking about the significance of rock circles and the way that they're aligned and the way that the light at different times of year filters through and awakens (laughs) the spirit, awakens the soul of the people, you know, marking time. I suppose they're very much about marking time as well about both in the time of making, physical properties of making, how long things take to develop and evolve, and also just from the viewer's perspective, imagining their experience of, of viewing the work and moving around it physically in space. The work cradling, for instance, in this exhibition was the first thing that I considered both... I think it was in all the works have been really developed in response to this gallery as a site. There's the 
I think uh, the first impression seeing the gallery empty was the huge physical dimension of the properties that load-bearing pillars have in the space, that they're very dominant as architectural features. And also the lift, which functions both as a a goods lift, a, a requirement for moving things around, but so it's large, it has big concertina stainless steel doors that unfold unfurl and you walk out into the space and suddenly you've arrived (laughs) (laughs) and I I loved that idea so I've made a a work which mimics the scale and proportions of the lift doors which is called Intract which is almost like a, a stage curtain that could close in between acts so you're anticipating what the next act might be what you'll see next and I think also that it's perhaps an opportunity for another route of departure although albeit a not necessarily a very opportune one in space as well it's not very realistic to think that you could escape through the space through this curtain but I like to imagine that you could and also in the lift there's the balustrade that you hold onto the kind of railing with the brackets and I've kind of extended that out into the space with my own version which is also recognising the space as one of its histories as a as an environment was for dance and performance and rehearsal. So I, I wanted to make something that referred to that but it could be just something that could be a holding rail that you could lean against and rest as well as perform in response to. And the big painting cradling extends the expanse between the two hemispheres that are created by the load-bearing pillars. And it's a six, more than six metre by three and a half metre painting that's um, on one side, it's silver and white, echoing the effect of a waterfall when you stand in close proximity to waterfalling and the idea of water in various states as well throughout the space, being both frozen, liquid, because the floor looks almost like being so highly polished, the the water receding back into the sea. I like to imagine that you're standing at the shore and the sea is drawing itself back away from you and the water that remains on the sand in that in-between space is this space of wonder and imagining. You kind of wait for, for seeing, to see what's revealed by the ocean's retreat and I kind of love that as a kind of echo of some quality in the space that's transformative and magical. But then on the, the flip side of that work mm. is this, it kind of goes from yellow to this deep orange mm. and it's, you know, got these grid lines on it yeah. with wood and it has this very modernist feeling. Yeah. And when I came across that work, last time we spoke, you sort of talked about how you feel like you had this very spontaneous side, mm. but then also this very organised and analytical mm. side. And when I looked at that work, it kind of felt like I was looking at the two mm. sides of your practice. Yes, very much. In a way. The work came out... Uh, about it from the concept of cradling which means to hold something gently and protectively but also it's a term used in painting conservation especially at the end of the 1800s when much earlier paintings which were then uh, created on wood from earlier centuries were decided to be preserved and conserved using wooden structures, battens that could move across the back of the wooden supports in order to hold them in place. And that 
term was also called cradling, which was later abandoned because it caused more damage to the work than it actually did to preserve it. So I was thinking of that in terms of other things that I've explored throughout my career as well, ideas to do with containment and covering and protection and transformation and metamorphosis. So the wooden structures refer to the idea of the traditional cradling technique, but also as stretches, museum stretches, it's a very present and very physical demonstration of a sense of structure and and formal kind of strength, I think, as you've described. It has a modernist aspect too, I suppose, because of its illusions and physical appearance relating to the grid, which has always been used as kind of a modernist kind of trope. (laughs) And I just loved the idea of cedar and its idea of being used for preserving fabrics as well. You will kind of traditionally put cedar uh, clothes in a cedar cabinet or cupboard and Today we have cedar that we can buy to put into uh, drawers to preserve (laughs) our precious fabrics Mm -hmm. to keep moths away because moths don't like it apparently. I suppose my thinking unfolds (laughs) across many different encyclopedic associations. It's hard to say it's about just one thing. It has many different unfolding meanings and relationships. And and I think they are developed over the period of making as well, that they kind of become apparent. I'm intuitive in terms of what I see is happening in studio in my making processes and allow that to happen and unfold naturally and heighten the things that are working well and in this case I'm very fortunate that it's resolved in the way I wanted it to be. That sense of time passing and how you've talked about marking time, are you anxious about time passing? Oh no, not in the least. (laughs) (laughs) It's just an observation I've made of perhaps other members of my family getting older perhaps. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a very positive thing to acknowledge your experiences and your times of your life, stages of your life. (laughs) Something that you mentioned a few times during our first interview, and I think you've mentioned once or twice even today, is that creating art is how you relate to the world. On, On the one hand, I feel like I intuitively get that, but I was hoping maybe you could just unpack it a little bit more. What does that mean? I suppose it's hard for people to accept something, a statement like that, or just to try and understand what that might mean if you don't have the experience of making visual art or having a very long-lived practice in making visual art. I think some people don't have the sense that... I suppose it, it aligns with my view that it's not necessarily a career but a vocation and it's something that I experience every day because I love it. It's not. I'm not doing it because it's a job and I'd do it anyway. I'd make work every day even, and I have done when I haven't been having exhibitions or haven't had opportunities. I still make work every day and I see that as part of a, an important discipline in some ways but it's also just... A natural part of my existence. I, I can't fight against it. I have to do it. And it's when I'm most happy. It's the thing I've recognised makes me very happy and makes me enjoy my life. And I suppose that's what I mean about it, that it's an extension of who I am. You know, some people write or they make music or they make sound or they dance or they, you know, play the tuba. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's making artwork or making things, you know, as an extension of my body, you know. Sometimes I don't really recognise them even as being artwork, or I certainly didn't when I was younger. There's, 
I feel like in the culture at the moment, there's a lot of talk, especially around female artists, taking that time to create and that women, perhaps more so than men, feel like they have to give up something. Yeah, I think that's always been something that people have talked about because as women, fundamentally, you know, through the eons of time, we've been caregivers, whether to our children or to our elderly members of our family or other people, or, you know, just have the desire to to look out for other people or just be supportive of other people, nurturing. That's the, the nurturing role has often fallen to women. And I think in more enlightened times, we've recognised that men equally or people, partners often equally contribute to that. I think it's just an acknowledgement of the challenge of just life, contemporary life. You know, having a mother who went back to work when I was a young child and it was a really big deal in the 1970s to go back to work full time and what that meant to the family dynamic. I observed how challenging it was for her to balance and manage everything in just her daily existence and I see her as a very powerful and positive role model for me to be conscious of all those things, all the things she both achieved and also gave up in order to to do what she wanted to do, felt compelled and needed to do and also financially had to do as well. You know, I'm very fortunate to be able to do, you know, have a full-time art practice but also to couple that with teaching part-time as well on a continuing basis at university. You know, I couldn't exist as an artist necessarily without that financial support. But on the same level, it gives me, on another level, it gives me the same, the possibility of, of being able to work when I want to towards exhibitions as well. I can feel less stressed about you know, how I'm going to fund those things financially or that I can actually make the work that I want to do. We did talk about this a little bit at the beginning, but I'm still curious as to to what it's like to bring together 30 years of work, but meanwhile knowing that really you're kind of still in the middle of your career, it still has so far to go. Yeah, it's exciting. I think that's the thing I feel most of all at the moment. I think it's hard... Once I've made a body of work or a work, I tend to try and let it go <laughs> emotionally. I've physically, I'm often very physically linked to the work. I've, I've used a lot of physical energy to make things. I've been in very close proximity for a long period of time, evolving the work, making the work. And I like to have distance from it to be able to see it from a more analytical perspective, to have that time of reflection and thinking that I think is equally important to the making time. And so I think it's they're all very positive things to be able to say, you know, look at, look at what I've made, but also knowing that it's really, as you've just said, the start of something too. I think it's very important to look forward always and not necessarily backwards and highlight and prioritise what you have done, but think about what opportunities and what exciting things it pro- proposes for the future. I think that's where I'm at at the moment with what I've done. And that was Louise Weaver discussing her painting practice. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and listen on Spotify, as well as check in with Art Guide online or pick up a copy of the print edition to keep up to date with art-related news, articles and features from around Australia.